Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Colin Seal on the podcast. Colin was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, to a single mother and an incarcerated father. He's always had a passion for educational equity. Tracked early into gifted and talented programs, Colin was afforded opportunities his neighborhood peers were not. He founded ThinkLaw, an award-winning organization to help educators leverage inquiry-based instructional strategies to close the critical thinking gap and ensure they teach and reach all students, regardless of race, zip code, or what side of the poverty line they are born into. When he's not serving as the world's most fervent critical thinking advocate, Colin proudly serves as the world's greatest entertainer to his two little kiddos and a loving husband to his wife, Carrie. Colin, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. So excited to be here, Scott. I'm excited to chat with you. And that was an awesome bio, by the way. Yeah. And I like to kind of point this out as a caveat, just to start it all out out with, um, when you think about growing up in Brooklyn, New York and having a dad that was in trouble with the law and having really not a lot of opportunities afforded. I think one thing that like people miss out on is the extreme amount of joy that was a part of my childhood. When I was in first grade, for instance, Scott, I lived in a one bedroom apartment with nine people. And that sounds crazy. That sounds like, oh my God, how'd you deal with that? But as a six-year-old, that's party time. That's always having adults to talk to. That's always having people that want to play with you and learn from. It was playing Scrabble with my no-holds-barred uncles who didn't really care and like would push me and push me and push me to step my vocabulary game up. And it ended up being a huge part of what made me who I am today. So I always kind of say that because I know for the educators out there that are thinking about students that are going through all these struggles, I often ask them to do some reframing and think about, What are the ways that 
what they are doing are actually setting them up for amazing levels of success in the future. So I always like to put that caveat out there whenever people kind of hear my background and hear about my story. Thanks, Colin. I really appreciate you pointing that out. You know, in the field of positive psychology where I work, we're really interested in kind of figuring out the various psychological factors and reframing and mindset and various things that can help bring those who are even, you know, the most disadvantaged kind of feel like there's hope. You know, there's a reason to keep working hard. And, you know, one of the criticisms of the field is that we shouldn't care about any of that. We should care about just the structural inequalities. And so I want to discuss with you, like, you know, how can, you know, that's kind of a false dichotomy, isn't it? First of all, like, can't we care about both? And, you know, how do you sort of view the situation? So it's so funny you say this because this sounds a lot like the conversations between my wife and I, where you can say race is a social construct and just call it that, or you can actually do some things to help to address some of those inequities that are there. I honestly look at any type of challenge we see in our world, Scott, whether it's a challenge in, in, in healthcare or in education or, you know, economic justice issues. And I'm like, okay, like I have always by nature been a, so what are we going to do about it kind of person? And by being a, what are we going to do about it kind of person, it often lends us into the world of leaning on a pragmatic. You know, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of conversations right now about the future of work and about how what students are experiencing in school isn't necessarily preparing them for this uncertain future of work. And when you go to some of these conferences, Scott, you might see people talking about, we need to transform education. We need to reimagine and redesign this or this, that, the other yeah. thing. And I'm like, okay. But at the end of the day, like we're talking about a really large system that is incredibly stubborn when it comes to making that sort of transformational change. So the revolution is going to have to be practical. It's mm. going to have to be things that people can apply on a Tuesday morning when they just came back from a fire drill. And now they've got to figure out how do they get more critical thinking into their classroom in a more kind of sustainable sort of way, given the personnel that we have, given the systems that we have set up. And, you know, to speak to kind of the bigger question around, like, how do you sort of break down this dichotomy? I'm like, we, we've got to do a little bit of both. We've got to make sure that we always have that focus on practical solutions that are going to move our society forward, while also acknowledging stepping back and realizing like, yeah, like we need to analyze these big picture systems and start to tinker away at ways to reform those. But we have to have some sort of trade-off between short-term gains and long-term structural changes that need to happen. I love that. So tell me about ThinkWall. Tell me about this, this company that you, that you founded. It looks really neat. Yeah. So it's interesting because I made the interesting life decision to be a middle school and high school math teacher during a day at a, a high poverty school in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I decided to go to law school at night. And while that wasn't the best life decision in a lot of ways, like my social life and just being newly married, in other ways, it was so incredibly transformational for me, Scott, because I've always been an underachiever. My whole entire life, I was that kind of kid where I'm like, eh, I'm passing, no big deal. I would be that kid who like, I would actually help people with homework assignments that I didn't even do myself. Like that was me. That's who I was even in graduate school. So when I got to law school, everything changed. Not because I became this super avid learner with all this new enthusiasm. It was that for once, 
it wasn't about just knowing stuff. Because it turns out in law school, you didn't really learn the law. You learn how to think like a lawyer. And this process of seeing things in different perspectives and asking questions to get information and making claims and backing up with evidence, it was entirely in line with my frame of viewing the world. Now, being the anti actually had value. Now, thinking differently about things, questioning the professor was part and parcel of what made you a success. And to be honest with you, there was nothing extraneous, at least from my viewpoint, I felt like I wasn't doing assignments for the sake of doing assignments. Everything was always about the final exam. I would say about 90% of my classes, 100% of the grades were your final exam, which is how you responded to this scenario, which was a typically a crazy out of this world scenario that measured you on how well you thought on your toes, how well you were able to answer this question, what would the world look like if? So as a kid that like did theater, um, I used to be like uh, did Broadway and African dance and hip hop dancing. Like it, it, it spoke to the spirit of creativity inside of me in a way that school never did. Like I would walk away from doing a three hour final exam and be like, damn, that's it. Like I really wanted to do more. <laughs> and at the same time, my kids had the highest test scores they ever did um, in a district uh, in an area that was one of the toughest parts of Las Vegas, we were able to essentially get the same kind of test scores you would see at the most affluent areas. And what was so powerful there, Scott, was that I realized you don't have to wait until law school to give kids exposure to this kind of thinking. It doesn't even need to be a civics or humanities or English class. In my math class, I would put problems up on a board where instead of like solving an equation, and instead of saying, okay, what did Jose do wrong on this problem, correct it, I would say, here are two problems that are both done wrong. Which one is more right? And kids would start going for it. It will turn into this super rigorous debate where talk about the metacognition, right? You're making predictions out of like the best case interpretation and the worst case interpretation of what mistakes might have been made. And like between the writing that's happening, the dialogue that's happening, and that conflict and drama, it just transformed the energy in kids where it didn't feel like a math class. There's no I hate math when you're having that kind of robust discussion. And I tell you, it was just really a transformational time for me to see what that connection was. So when I realized that, that became a formation behind my work with Think Law. I practiced law for three years. And when I launched Think Law, it was around this idea that maybe there's a reason that 25 past presidents and 35 founding fathers and Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela have all been attorneys. This is the exact kind of critical thinking our kids need. So Let's start them with it now. So right now, Think Law helps educators teach critical thinking using legal cases and upper grades. In lower grades, we use fairy tales and nursery rhymes because there's just a lot of shady characters in children's stories. And we That's do that. a lot of training on Socratic style questioning to help all educators make that shift, right? From asking what and how to, to more of that why and what if that would cause that same spark that I experienced. Wow, that is so cool. And you're really like bringing the spirit of like, you know, we don't need to, I really like that spirit of we don't need to wait till the person's rich and successful, you know, by society standards to learn the key skills that are going to help them thrive right now. I really, really like that. You know, I really appreciate you being so vulnerable and kind of talking so openly about your early struggles. I, you know, also had my own struggles, you know, with um, being in special education and things of that nature. You know, 
how much do you think like we could use to have more discussions, open, honest discussions where we talk about our common struggles versus like, let's like talk about, you know, maybe like we had similar struggles and maybe we can like understand where each other's coming from and maybe try to pull each other up and support each other. But you seem like the type of person that is really into open, honest conversations. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So I'm sure you've seen that thing on social media that's kind of gone viral of like, you know, our inability or the advice that we've gotten to like not talk about religion or politics is the reason that we keep on getting everything wrong when it comes to religion and politics. I honestly think that one of the challenging things about growing up, how I grew up, Scott, is like, you know, I was completely, basically 100% segregated in my community up until eighth grade. Went to a specialized high school, the Bronx High School of Science in New York City, where it was my first time like living like a racial minority and understanding what that felt like. And I often joke, you know, there's all this kind of talk around how when you are a, a Black student who really cares about academics, you get accused of acting white. That could not possibly have been a thing where I grew up because nobody knew what acting white meant. We didn't mm. know any white people. It wasn't a thing that you could even accuse somebody of doing. But by the time I got to college, I realized like, you know what's really missing from my college experience at Syracuse University? Poor white people. Mm. It just wasn't a thing. Like, you know, we got there, a lot of my my friends and people that came from my neighborhood and my communities, you know, we got different scholarships and different programs. We had student athletes. And for a predominantly white institution like Syracuse, that's where you're probably getting the bulk of your student population. We also had some affluent African-American students as well. but the vast majority of, you know, white students at some of these really elite institutions across the country are not coming from more meager upbringings where we can actually see, like, we've got these things in common. We've got a lot of these shared struggles. And it really wasn't until I got to law school, it wasn't really until I got a lot older, where I started to, like, meet colleagues and be like, oh, like, huh. So I'm not the only one that had an incarcerated parent. Mm. Interesting. Oh, so I'm not the only one that like went to school on free and reduced lunch. And like, and honestly, getting into the education space, I remember being at the National Title I Conference, which is the collection of all these different schools across the country that have 40% or more kids at, on free and reduced lunch. And Scott, it blew my mind. It blew my mind because when I think Title I high poverty, I think growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I think Chicago, I think LA, mm. I had no idea that the vast majority of Title I districts numerically, in terms of the quantity of those districts, are rural white districts. Hmm. It just completely blew my mind that like, okay, this factory town in Montana, this small city or this small town in Kansas or in the Dakotas, where they've lost a lot of industry, they're struggling with the opioid epidemic to a level and extent that is unimaginable they're facing the same sort of struggle. And when I start talking about things like access, access mm. to engaging instruction, access to the kind of transformational critical thinking that's gonna transform our kids' perceptions of who they are and who they can be. Mm. The reality is when you live in a city, at least you are in a space where by osmosis, you can be exposed to these certain things. There's different programs. A lot of people target these places. There are programs educational programs and companies that literally don't even work with small districts as a rule because there's not enough like bang for their buck. There's not enough return on their investment, supposedly. Mm -hmm. So 
it does really start to step back a little bit and realize like, huh, like there are a lot of people that are not getting a fair shake. And I suspect, Scott, that it's not an accident that we are kind of trained to sow in our divisions. Because I think that if we actually realized how much we had in common and united, that would be a very dangerous force for the status quo to handle. Wow. 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 Okay. You said so many juicy things. And as a podcast host, it's like, which one do I pick to follow up on? Uh, Okay. Wait. So, okay. First of all, can you, the very last thing you said, like, so who, who's the status quo in your mind? Give me a concrete, like who will blow whose mind if we recognize that. So when I step back and I think about like the status quo, particularly when it comes to education, I think that the one thing that was true when we were young, that is still true today, that if we don't change, will still be true in the next generation, is that zip codes determine your destiny, by and large, right? Like stories like mine, where, you know, I get this excellent education and I go off and become student body president at Syracuse and become this award-winning entrepreneur with a law degree and all this stuff. That's the exception to the rule. And that rule that says that who you're born to and where you're born, how much money they make determines what your outcome is going to be in life. That's the injustice. Like that is the status quo. And a lot of times when I think about transformation, I think about like, how do we move from that space to a point where we can actually say in truth, like in earnest, that every single child has a fair shot at being exceptional. Like every kid is actually a realistic thing that we're like, all right, like, We can set all of you all up to fulfill your potential and set the world on fire. Like we can actually figure out a way to do this. Maybe I'm a cock-eyed optimist, but I believe that that ought to be the goal. It's a shame that that's become like an insult. I know it has, it has been, yeah. To dream bigger. Yeah. But I don't know, I don't know. I, I, I think that one of the biggest challenges, and this is going back to like teaching kids to be dumb enough. Right. And, and it's, it's one of those things that was a tough thing for me to struggle with until I was part of this, uh, this organizing training. And I remember there was a problem that we were posed, Scott. This is an interesting one. OK, so you're trying to advocate on behalf of like a community that needs 75 full day kindergarten programs. OK, so we're looking at it. We're looking at the budget and we're like, all right, so what do we do? And we like set up this whole big compromise. Me and like five other super smart like education leader people, I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask for like 15 in the first year, pilot it, show the data, whatever. And then by year, whatever, year four, year five, we'll have like the 75. And the, the lead person for the training is looking back at us. like, okay, cool, cool. All right. So you said the need was what? Like, well, 75. I'm like, all right. Well, why don't you ask for 75 schools if that's what was needed? I'm like, well, you're never going to get 75 schools. Who says you're never going to get 75 schools funded for full day kindergarten? Well, it's not realistic. Who says it's not realistic? Mm. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I guess I just kind of talked myself out, right? Yeah. I, I kind of did this logical reasoning to do this thing. And I'm like, well, why would we negotiate against ourselves or something that we've determined was important? We determined that it was essential. But somehow as a starting point off the block, we decided to not even start with what the, the core need was, mm. right? And I think about that in terms of like, really smart people that like settle for like a good job. Now, look, I get economics. I get like breaking through cycles of poverty. Like 
I'm never going to thumb my nose at somebody securing a job that's paying them great money and great benefits. But I do believe that we live in a society where we encourage a lot of these safe behaviors and a lot of our kids who are probably best served to transform the world as we know it, but they never get taught that skill because we are much more likely to groom them for the safe way out, right? And this is where I think we end up with this culture of like underachievement that by any objective means is fine. Like kids are doing fine in a lot of those cases. But when I think about why we haven't cured cancer, but we can order a phone from our watch, I'm like, I think we're just not unleashing the passion and talent in a way that is really tapping into everybody's full potential. Here, here. Well, it sounds like both of us are on that mission, this, the, the same mission, and all different, see, you know, I mentioned all different kinds of minds, whether it's autism, whether it's giftedness, whether it, I mean, it could be two, twice exceptional, autism and giftedness, right? I don't know how familiar are you with the twice exceptional movement? Very, very, very familiar with it. Very familiar with it. Um, and in fact, I've lived it, right? I've, I've lived it in a way that forces me to always kind of step back and reflect. I've lived it as a participant and as a spectator where when I was in first grade, I was getting in trouble like at least once a week. And when I say I was getting in trouble, like I had this science teacher named Miss Lifshitz. And really, how could you not get in trouble? The teacher was named Miss Lipschitz. I would get in trouble every day. <laughs> and I remember in first grade, she asked me to write an essay reflecting my behavior, 100 words. And I wrote, and she did like a science lab thing for our class. So I wrote like, I hate science 32 times. And I had four words left over so I could write, I hate you too. And I remember the first grade power professional, like the teacher's aide, put my mom aside and said, you need to get this kid tested. I had a speech impediment. I was getting in all this trouble, but the test revealed that I was actually gifted. I had to take this whole barrage of tests, ended up being gifted. And I predict, looking back, that I was probably undiagnosed with some version of ADHD because mm. lifelong issues with organization, my issues with like kind of time management, kind of selective effort. I feel like the more that I've learned about this as an educator, I'm like, oh my God, like, they probably would never have diagnosed me because it never could have occurred to them that I could be twice exceptional. Yeah. But then as a participant, I've also seen, as a spectator, I've seen the sharpest young man that I've ever come across in my whole uh, education career in juvenile detention. Mm. He was an English learner. He was a kid with like all these se severe behavior challenges, but he was a prodigy. Granted, he used his prodigy skills to start this whole drug ring, but he was this exceptional young man that I thought was a perfect example of how we continuously leave genius on a table. And mm. I just look at this and I'm like, why is it that, and it's a question I always ask God, is it that we don't look hard enough? Or are we so sort of overwhelmed that we kind of look at like the first thing that we see presented as a summary of what the whole deal is. Oh, this kid is a behavior kid. This kid is an autism kid. This kid is a gifted kid. And we just kind of like take it at that face value and leave it alone. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that if we kind of had this unifying principle around what the purpose of education is, which is 
to unleash every student's full potential. There's a lot that ends up being built into that definition, right? Like, I've got to know what that potential is. I've got to make it my mission to discover that potential. I've got to know what it takes to nurture and make that potential flourish. I've got to make sure I set up like, you know, ways to, to, to recognize this. And as an education leader, I've got to think about, well, we do have barriers to this. We do have this belief gap in our world where not all education people believe that all kids can truly achieve. And even if they believe that, they don't believe that they have the ability to make that achievement happen. So we've got to think about ways that we can start to cross those bridges to start closing that belief gap for folks. So, but again, if we make that the end, that we have a system that unleashes the full potential of all kids, then I think that's going to be differentiated enough that we won't end up in a space where we're just leaving so much talent and so much genius behind on the table. I wrote an article for Scientific American called Talent on the Sidelines about the excellence gap that people like Jonathan Pucker and his colleagues have shown to be true. Let's talk about the excellence gap for a second, gifted education. Gifted education is like predominantly, predominantly white middle class students. What do you think is going on there? Um, These are not easy questions, are of they? Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> are easy answers. So, so I mean, I want to I wanna really tackle this one in ways that I think are super important and maybe don't get talked about often enough. And to be honest with you, Scott, as an African-American male who was a product of a gifted program, I feel like it's almost like my responsibility to speak on issues like this and say some of the things that might be a little bit more uncomfortable for other people to say. For one- I want you to speak your truth. Sure. A lot of really educated, equity-forward people often get so caught up in the ideas around the inequities and gifted identification that they almost want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And I can tell you, being a Teach for America alum who got into education as a social justice movement, within my crowd, Scott, it's a very funky thing to be in support of. Like, you're supporting, like, gifted learners? You're supporting elitism? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like it's like okay, well, I mean, and 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 I'm like okay, but at some point in our training, at some point, for people that are focusing and working in low-income populations, do we not recognize that there is brilliance in our classrooms, in our communities? Like, are we just gonna act like every single kid is coming to us with all these deficits, and we are gonna be that knight in shining armor? I say no. I actually say hell to the no. And we need to really focus on making sure that we understand that there has always been brilliance there. There's always been genius there. And we've got to open up our eyes in a way that presents itself. And here is the thing that makes it a little bit more challenging. It takes a special sort of person to look at a student that writes you an essay that says, I hate science 32 times, and gives you the last four words, I hate you too, and think, I think this kid might be gifted. What you really want to do is just send that kid to class, you know, kick him out of school. And that's something that we just have to be honest about. The truth is, if you are under stress, if you have really large class sizes, if you're not very experienced, if you're not getting a lot of support, it might be the last thing on your mind to think about who are the gifted learners in my classroom that might not get the support that they need. Oftentimes, too, we talk about like, economics. And I think in the financial world, we can talk about the wealth gap. 
right? We can like, okay, a few generations ago, African-Americans couldn't even own property or they were like redlined out of these districts or out of these areas. So you can look at like the economic wealth gap and that can make sense. But when you start talking about like this knowledge gap, when you start thinking about like generationally being excluded from a lot of these sorts of programs, it is a huge difference. When you go, I was in a pretty affluent district in Texas, speaking at a, a conference there to parents of gifted uh, children. And it seems pretty clear to me that for a really long time, probably since the time these kids were born, these parents were in the know. Many of them had been a part of gifted programs before. They had parents and families that just knew how to navigate these systems and they just knew. So I think we need to think about like the cycle that starts to develop where you're like, that gap in knowledge widens. And when you start thinking about access to gifted programs, we have to realize it's not just the program itself. One of the big frustrations, Scott, that a lot of gifted coordinators tell me is like, look, like we actually, you know, we did get our numbers up, but we have a lot of our black and Latino kids dropping out of the program by the time they get into middle school. Or we get people that get offered to be in a program and their parents decide not to do it. So you have to think, okay, what is going on there? And it turns out a parent looking at options for their kids doesn't just look at the quality of the program. They also don't want them to be the only minority student in the whole class. They don't want them to be separated from their rest of their peers and all of their friends. And when I think about the experience of going to Bronx High School of Science where there were not a lot of black students, and I remember being a sophomore reading Huckleberry Finn and everybody's having this conversation about the N-word. And I just didn't really feel like participating. It just wasn't really the thing. And, you know, the teacher is like, so Colin, what do you think about the use of the N-word in Huckleberry Finn? And I'm like, well, I don't know. On behalf of the entire African-American race, like, well, what am I supposed to say here, you know? And I, I can see a lot of reason that is valid that I might not necessarily want to be a part of that. Which is why, again... Having awareness and education around gifted education in high poverty schools becomes so crucial because if you can really encourage and build those pockets of giftedness within their existing spaces, I'd rather see that come up that way. I think that would do a lot more for increasing our numbers over the long haul. But I don't know, Scott. I can probably talk all day about that oh, issue. Oh, we you both know, could. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, Professor uh, Donna Ford writes a lot about this, and I know Donna um, Ford. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, she, it's one she of those wrote, She contributed where, to a book I edited on Twice Exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. It's like. I mean, th there's so much built up in this whole thing, and point blank period. You know, racism has a lot to do with this as well. You know, like it's really hard to see giftedness in populations when your idea of what giftedness is supposed to look like is kind of prescribed by like upper middle class, like white values. If that's the basic prescription of what it is, and you have a teaching profession that as a whole is predominantly white. And as a gifted teacher, like I gotta tell you, Scott, I'm always taken aback at the gifted conferences that I go to when I'm like, wow, like why don't more black and brown educators get involved in gifted education? If that doesn't change, it's going to be really hard to change these numbers at a certain point because those conferences trend a lot whiter than the education population as a whole. And that certainly doesn't help matters. A lot of credit is due. I've heard 
increasingly more frequent conversations around the equity challenges in gifted education, both in identification and in support of minority populations and giftedness. Definitely broadening a lot of the understanding around twice exceptional children as well. So I think the trend is in the right direction, but this needs to be a bigger platform by and large. And if we get to a point where every single teacher training program required courses in gifted education as a part of that process, where we included twice exceptionality, where we included like the way that giftedness presents in all its different forms, then we'll get closer to a place where kids all have that equal shot at being at least statistically consistent with their representation in the general population. So that's a big deal. That would be wonderful for sure. I think, you know, there's all sorts of debates about all these topics. These are, there are no easy answers here. Um, but, you know, there's a distinction that some people make between the importance of equality of opportunity, which is what it sounds like you're talking about, and then a quality of outcome. So, you know, it might not ever be possible to, to have 50-50, you know, just based on like, like you said, proportional representation. And if you think about how many, so like, where do you stand on the, like, do you think there should be equality of outcome? Do you see what I'm saying? I hear that what you're saying. And, you know, we, we were going back and forth on Twitter this weekend about like not having a tribe. This well, is you, I, I lose, really appreciated you, your support. <laughs> this is where I lose part of my tribe. You know, um, I know that in a lot of our lower income areas, when we look at like test performance, like there's a lot of weight is given to growth. And it's important to grow kids. It's important to see that they're like, you know, achieving and getting close to where they need to get to. But there's a part of me that's like, okay, if at the end of the day, there's like one year growth, two year growth, three years growth, but it still turns out that only 17% of these kids are proficient in reading, then only 19 are proficient in math. I don't think that growth matters. Like, I don't think that that's enough. I think that like, we need to actually focus on kind of going back to that issue of, uh, you know, 75 early childhood centers or full day kindergartens. We need the kids to actually be proficient. So the question is, what is it going to take? What do we need to accomplish? Maybe it's going to be the summer. Maybe it's going to be Saturdays. Maybe it's going to be after school programming. How are we going to make it so that more kids are actually proficient and at grade level? So that like, we can stop having that conversation about kids and not being proficient and not at grade level. What needs to happen? And you might say, well, you got kids that are English learners and the new arrivals. Okay, what do we need to do in the first two years to make sure that by the end of those first two years, they are proficient? Because it's never gonna be okay with me that in these schools, we're okay with growth. And in these schools, we're looking at proficiency and mastery. And then when you exit 12th grade, there's this huge disparity in what the outcome is. At a certain point, the outcome is the opportunity. Because if your outcome guarantees that I'm never going to be where I'm supposed to be, if the outcome guarantees that I'm now going to college, taking remedial everything that doesn't count and I have to pay for, sometimes out of my own pocket, that's not equality in, in, in outcomes nor opportunity. Like we have to focus on the bottom line. Like what is it going to take to get kids ready? What is it going to take? And I know... Tests are not the most perfect indicator, but it's what we've got and it's what we know we're dealing with. So let's do what it takes to make sure at a bare minimum we can say we've got kids to this level. And that's kind of where I focus on. Because I often find too, it's like a chicken or egg kind of deal. A lot of times it still comes down to opportunity. It still comes down to opportunity. Like 
I was in a classroom the other day uh, observing a sixth grade class and it was English learners and they were doing third grade work, okay? Now, on the surface, a lot of things could be going on. It could be that the teacher noticed there was a specific deficiency, so she pulled this one worksheet to have these kids working on this one third grade standard. But more often than not, it's, I don't think these kids can handle the sixth grade work. So let me just make it easier for them so they can experience success. It might be well-intended, but it's that kind of love that's grounded in those low expectations that we know, we know we're gonna haunt our kids. We know we're gonna underprepare them for their futures and make sure that they're ready for neither college nor career upon exit on 12th grade. So that's kind of how I look at that whole opportunity versus outcomes argument. Colin, I have to say that was what you said. The outcome is the opportunity is literally one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard in my entire life. And that was a real, real aha moment for me. So I just want to thank you for saying, I don't know if you've said that before in, 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 in things, but I'm going to make that the opening quote of this, this podcast awesome. chat. If that's no, so that makes so much sense. That makes so what's, much sense. Yeah. What's so, what's so funny. You talk about uh, recognizing genius in all of its forms. I think a lot of between my writing and public speaking and stuff like this comes from the fact that like growing up in Brooklyn and going to this nerdy high school, I kind of balanced it out by hanging out with like kids that were more or less like hoodlums. And we used to rap a lot and I freestyle. So the ability to like think on the top of my head and like come up with different raps and whatever is a part of like how you can be on a flow, yeah. have passion about it and just start saying these things. And, you know, it kind of gives me permission to be authentic as well. So when I'm speaking truth and I'm able to actually like, you know, get into that zone, it's just like when you catch a hot beat and you just start going and you're like, you don't even know what you're saying. You got to go back and like, let me see that video again. What did I even say? Because what you're saying is just, it's just a culmination of all my years of living in unjust systems and then yeah. being able to teach in them and now working with schools in 15 different states and realizing whether it's rural or urban or poor or more affluent, it's so much of the same sort of problem being played out over and over and over again. So yeah, thanks for recognizing that. No, I love it. Absolutely. Um, so related to all this stuff we're talking about, you wrote an article, argue, make the argument that when love is grounded in the soft bigotry of low expectations, it's the wrong kind of love. Could you explain what the right kind, what's the difference between the wrong kind and, and what do you think is the right kind of love? So what prompted this is I was sitting next to a superintendent of the largest district in his state. And I asked him, like, what, what keeps you up at night? Like, well, what's the one thing that, like, pains you to the core? And his response completely blew my mind. His response was Mother Teresa syndrome. I was like, what's that? Mother Teresa syndrome. This feeling that like a lot of kids, particularly kids that are coming from low-income backgrounds, they have it so tough. They've got it so rough that I want to give them the kind of educational space that coddles them, that makes them feel loved and secure. And when he said that, I was like, huh, I think he's onto something. Because as I mentioned in that article, there was a first grade teacher that stopped me in the middle of one of my critical thinking trainings. I was like, look, this critical thinking stuff is great. But as a first grade teacher, I feel I'm in the business of building my kid's self-esteem. So I struggle having them like, work through a problem and then they start crying because they don't know the answer or they don't know how to figure it out. And I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, but... The problem is when they come see me in middle school and they're still crying, 
because you never gave him that opportunity to have that challenge. If you take away that opportunity to have that productive struggle, like when I say the wrong kind of love, what I'm asking educators to do, what I'm asking parents to do as well is to not deny our kids the glory of persevering through productive struggle. It's a glorious moment when kids learn how to tie their shoes on their own. Like my daughter is six years old. By the time she was three, I'm like, go get your milk yourself. Sure, that involves doing some acrobatics to get up to the level of the fridge that it's at. Sure, it's gonna involve a lot of different spills that she has eventually learned how to clean up on her own. But there's a satisfaction. Every single time she does that right, she's like, yeah, pour my own milk, baby. And I'm like, yeah, I can stay on a couch. So like, it's, it's a win-win situation, but we don't go for that win often enough. We like things to be just so, right? Like we want our kids to get ready. We lay their clothes out for them. I'm like, you know, why do we feel afraid to truly transfer that power to our young people? And then we complain when they get older and we, oh, they just don't have that hustle, right? They don't have that like fire, that desire. Well, we've taken away any reason they would have that desire by that point. They come out of the womb with all this intellectual curiosity about the world, asking why every five minutes. At some point we start shutting that down. At some point we start saying these things like, you know, you know, stop trying to get smart. And these messages that come about, it's like, you know, why should I even do this? It doesn't matter. My mom's gonna do it for me. My dad's gonna do it for me. Somebody else is gonna figure this out. And then they be develop these intellectual habits that are less curious. They're more complacent. They take less risks. And again, this is what happens after like time after time of these low expectations. And they don't always seem like low expectations. They don't always seem low. Sometimes they seem well-intended. I think about a kid in my first year of teaching, and I talk about him in this story as well, where like he was failing almost every class, and then he turned it around, and it was such an inspiration. Like to this day, I, got, I had a chance to have breakfast with him about five months ago, and I was like, man, you were such an inspiration. But I got to ask this one question. Like when we had that assembly at the end of the year, and like you got most improved student in almost every single one of your classes, why'd you just not show up? Everybody had these special speeches to you and whatever. And he was like, I just don't understand why y'all would give me an award for things I was supposed to be doing anyway. And it made me sit back and think like, huh, even in a moment where I thought I had the highest of expectations, like I was subconsciously lowering the bar and giving this guy the medal of honor for basically showing up and showing me that he can like do the basics. He's went on to earn his associate's degree, has aspirations to do so much more, but I'm like, what if we didn't settle for the basics? What if no matter what our kids presented, whether it was behavior or lack of enthusiasm, we demanded the outstanding. We were committed to them reaching their full potential no matter what. And there was no medal, no prize, no nothing until they got to that point. The victory was in the struggle and we made it clear that that was what the victory was. It'll be a really different world. So that's kind of where I talk about like the right kind of love. I can see how uh, me and you would both be... Uh annexed from every possible identity group imaginable because you're you're a free thinker i mean it's obvious to me you're a free thinker not every single thing you think is all down one particular party line you know so well, let's talk about this uh controversial article that came out in ed week the other day i don't know if you saw it 
The title was Grit is in Our DNA, Why Teaching Grit is Inherently Anti-Black. That was the title of the article. It seems to me like you have a perhaps a little more nuanced view about it, that it's either you teach grit or you help with social inequalities, that maybe you can, you know, what are your thoughts on that kind of argument? Because some people have criticized, you know, perseverance and grit as a construct in low-income schools, especially in African-American populations. Some people have criticized it saying, what these kids need is not grit because they already are gritty. You know, what they need is like money, you know, and, and opportunities and things and kind of treat it like an either or issue. So what are your thoughts on this? So I think the problem is, and this is by and large, we don't describe things with enough specificity and that causes like challenges around things. Like for instance, there's a popular guy in education reform that says these things where he's like, you know, I fought for like civil rights where we like sat in at counters so we can be served at the restaurants. And today our kids can sit at the restaurants, but they can't read the menus. And people are like, oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, okay, let's stop for a second. Like kids can't read hamburger $3.99. Get out of it. That's not true, right? Like kids are not performing as we would like to on standardized exams. And those performance numbers on standardized exams trend on race in negative ways. Like, that's what it is. But just because 26% of kids are proficient doesn't mean that only 26% of those kids can read. Like, we got to start saying things for what they are. When it comes to the grit discussion, I think that it becomes another similar issue around, around like how we describe things. So what I often say in my relationship with grit is like, yes, a lot of our kids already exemplify grit. They are living and breathing examples of grit. The young man I referred to that was a brilliant man that I met in juvenile detention, he had two children at 18 years old. He had spent four months standing in front of Home Depot doing day laborer work until he realized like nobody really wanted to hire a scrawny little boy to do tasks around the house. He needed to find a different hustle. Like, when I think about a lot of our kids throughout this country who are taking care of younger siblings, going through all sorts of drama, navigating through dangerous neighborhoods, you know, we have uh, some schools on the Navajo Reservation here in Arizona where kids are commuting an hour and a half to two hours a day to get to school. I'm like, yes, on one hand, please don't tell me that our kids don't have grit, okay? Because a lot of our kids are using grit every single day just for survival. The issue is in school, and this is the question I always pose, are we giving our kids a reason to exercise their grittiness? And I say this because you might look at my life story and say like, Colin, you have a really gritty, you've been persevering. Okay, am I gritty about doing the dishes? No. Am I gritty about doing taxes? Absolutely not, right? Those are things that I suffer to through. At some point I figure it out, but when it comes to like actual grit, we need to give our kids a reason. It's actually inefficient to be gritty about every single thing under the sun. Totally. And in fact, when it comes to like gifted children and often sometimes, you know, twice exceptional children or autistic children, it's like, you need to really make sure they understand like kind of like the gambler, when to hold them, when to fold them. Like when is a task actually not worth completing is a thing we have to ask ourselves all the time. I'm sure as a researcher, there's some projects you're like, you know what, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> I got to know to scrap this. This is not going to really be what I thought it was going to be. Put this on a back burner. I'll do some other things instead. Like, 
are we giving kids a reason to be gritty? Mm. Our approach with Think Law is we tap into their inherent sense of fairness and justice. Typically, kids are pretty gritty when it comes to what's fair and what is not. They want to get to the bottom of it. Right? There's a reason why, regardless of how bad the first three minutes is of a Law & Order episode, you're inclined to want to stick it through. You're inclined to figure out, like, why was that body there? Who did it? Like, got, you want to get to the bottom of it. There's a reason for that. And, like, that's kind of what our approach is. And that's what we're teaching teachers to do, whether it's math or science. Like, that conflict, that drama, that's the draw to bring out that grittiness in kids. But if we just were more careful about the language and didn't act as if, like, kids don't have grit, and if only they had grit, they'd be successful. Right. And instead realize, huh. As teachers, we need to give them space where we're going to tap into that intrinsic motivation, tap into that agency that's going to make them super excited to be able to be in a space where they're sharing knowledge and building relationships with their peers and just really pushing themselves. Like that's where the rubber hits the road when it comes to that great conversation. Thank you for that level of nuance. I, I couldn't agree more. I've used a corny term I've called, I've referred to organic grit. Because I say, like, you know, we need to grow grit from within, not, you know, from, like, you fail class if you don't show grit. It's like, well, maybe your classes sucks, right? Like, it's not the student's fault, <laughs> you know, that they're not gritty about your class. So, anyway, I've referred to that as organic grit. But so, I'm very much aligned with, with a lot of what you just said. So, let's end with a topic of disruptors as innovators. You've written really uh, thoughtfully about that topic as well. Could you talk a little about what that means and why we need to recognize disruptors as innovators? Sure, sure. And this is something that really struck me when I was an attorney at a big corporate firm doing intellectual property and litigation work. And, you know, you, you go to these mixers and you go to these events and you're like, you know, this guy, this guy goes against the grain and he's just such a different thinking leader. And this person marched to the beat of their own drummer. And I know he represented a dude who, uh, he like owned, he opened up a liquor store in the Las Vegas airport which ended up being one of the best-selling liquor stores Good in the city. Idea. First thing you want to do when you go to the Plain of Vegas is buy some alcohol. But like, I'm like, watch the beat of their own drummer. This guy, you know, is a, a disruptor. Like, we, we, we actually talk about Steve Jobs and, you know, Uber and these different CEOs as like, they're just so disruptive. And I'm like, the natural inclination is to kick disruptive kids out of class. That's a natural inclination. You're disruptive. You're not paying attention. You're not behaving like you're out of class. And I wonder what we might be missing. And I often ask this question in my training, Scott. I ask, in this room of 100 people, how many of you educators were like good students? You did your work. You never really got in trouble. You'd be disappointed if you got to be. And like almost every person kind of reluctantly raises their hand like, yeah, kind of smile like they were proud about their grades. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You might be part of the problem. And they start laughing, and I'm like, you know, I don't really mean to blame you. I don't really mean to say that you're a problem for real. What I'm saying is there are many ways that you are breeding and building out this culture of compliance without necessarily knowing it, but you're building out this culture of compliance where if kids just did this and they just adhere to this and that and the other thing and just follow the rules, they'll be good to go. But what happens when the rules are the problem? What space are you creating for those kids to be successful? Because there's certain kids that look at a system and they're like, this isn't going to work for me. And those are usually the people that end up being those same disruptors. So why do we want to downgrade their potential success by forcing that compliance? 
And it's a thin line, right? Because on one hand, you're not going to be able to teach anybody if chairs are flying through your classroom. But on the other hand, like when students question things, it should always cause you to reflect and be like, well, why is this question happening? And maybe I can create space for this answer to exist and this framework to exist to start thinking differently about this. I'll give you a quick example. There was a discrimination case in a think law lesson where the teacher posed a question of what would be worse if I threw a stick at you because you were Asian or if I threw a stick at you because you were wearing a black shirt? And every kid was like, oh, much worse if it's Asian. If you're Asian, you know, that it's racist and you can't control what race you're born into, whatever have you. All right. One girl raises her hand. And I knew this woman, this girl, seventh grader, I knew that she was on an IEP, was kind of like a, just a different sort of thinker about stuff. And she's like, black shirt, much worse. This teacher knew how to create space for her idea, though. She's like, okay, well, like, how are you justifying that? Why would you say that the black shirt is worse? And she explained, well, at least we know that racism is a thing. And there's actual racist people out there in the world. But if you're throwing sticks at somebody because of the color of their shirt, you might have some more serious issues. And people are like, oh, haven't thought about that. That actually makes sense. Now I can see that argument as to why the black shirt might be worse. But you created that space for divergent thinkers within our classroom space. And it mattered, one, that that wasn't necessarily a right or wrong answer, right? It was, can it be justified or can it not be justified? And I think that once we start going along those lines and creating that space for disruptives to be able to thrive, now it's much more likely we've created a pathway to innovation a pathway to really make sure that every kid is reaching their full potential because you haven't arbitrarily placed a glass ceiling on their success levels. That's awesome, Colin. Thank you for being your own disruptor and uh, the great work that you're doing and channeling me today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
dot does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.